Okay, so for week five um, in AP Psych, we are going to be talking about um, the neuron, and we'll get into details about neurotransmission, neurotransmitters, and the firing of a neuron. Um, this begins, like week five, begins our second unit of this year, and that unit title is Biological Basis of Behavior. So I'll throw in the phrase, everything psychological is also biological. So this is very um, bio-oriented. Some of it should be slightly a review depending on your background of biology, but we're going to go through um, it bit by bit inside and outside of class. So a little bit of background and history that we'll get into a little bit in class, but we won't get into it all. But pretty much over, it, it's only been about 150 years um, that we have made a scientific co connection between um, the brain and the body. Previously, we mostly focused on whether the mind and body were connected or separate. Think about what we talked about with week two with the Greeks uh, and the other like old philosophers as Socrates, Plato, um, and the like. So before we began like delving into details about the brain, um, there was a study, it's called um, phrenology. So with this study, we associate the guy Franz Joseph Gall, and he kind of kickstarts this study of the brain. Um, but specifically, what he believed was the bumps on the head revealed specific mental abilities and character traits. There is no scientific basis here. However, he did introduce the concept of different parts of the brain led to different functions. And we'll talk about that when we get to the brain. With this part of psychology, we could consider it biological psychology. So if we're thinking back to the different perspectives and approaches of psychology, we're really focusing on this biological perspective here to explain behavior and mental processes. So the big thing here is this is this branch of psychology that, um, that connects biology and behavior. This could also be known as behavioral neuroscience, neuropsychology, behavior genetics, physiological psychology, as well as biopsychology. So lots of different words that mean the same thing with what we talk about. Um, I'm going to initially, you know, break down this neuron. It is helpful to actually have an image up looking at a diagram of a neuron, especially, you know, if you're trying to review this material, but a little bit of background about the neuron itself. So humans are made up of several different systems and those systems are made up of even smaller subsystems. So what we will do this unit and specifically this week is we'll look at how the nervous system is organized. We're going to start small with the neurons and then build our way up to the top, the most complicated, unique part of humans, which is our brain. Um, so going down, you know, the small parts, I guess, of this unit will be the neurons. We could also refer to them as nerve cells. They are this basic building block of the nervous system. What neurons do, they transmit, store, and process info. There are several different kinds. We're going to talk about three. They all have the same structure though, regardless of the function. 
so two types of nerve cells. We have cells or neurons in the peripheral nervous system, and we'll break down what that peripheral nervous system is in um, a week or two. And within the peripheral nervous system, we have sensory or afferent neurons and then motor or efferent neurons. And then we have cells that are in the central nervous system that consists of the brain and the spinal cord. And those neurons inside the CNS are known as interneurons. So a little bit about sensory neurons. Remember, they're part of the peripheral nervous system. Think peripheral, the periphery. If you're thinking about your peripheral vision, it's your side vision. So it's everything that is not considered the brain and the spinal cord. And so these types of neurons in the peripheral nervous system, they're called sensory, but they could also be referred to as afferent neurons. And what these neurons or how they're activated is through an outside stimulus, so something visual, um, touch, hearing, etc. We'll get into those different stimuli in our next unit. And what these sensory neurons do, they send the sensory info to the central nervous system. Um, you could also talk about sensory receptors here. Some afferent neurons have sensory receptors where they convert that stimulus, the light, the sound, something um, through touch, to an actual nerve impulse. And we'll talk about that process. It's called transduction in our following unit. Um, the second type of neuron that's part of the uh, peripheral nervous system, they're called motor neurons, but they could also be called efferent neurons, and they carry information from the central nervous system that consists of the brain and spinal cord, and that information goes from the CNS to particular effector cells that are located in muscles and glands, and those effector cells in turn cause those muscles and glands to actually work, do something, hence it could also be called a motor neuron. A kind of trick to remember this is um, sensory receptor is to afferent neuron as effector cell is to efferent neuron. A quick mnemonic that could help you remember this is that afferent neurons arrive, efferent neurons exit. And when we think of arrive and exit, it would be arriving to that central nervous system or exiting from the central nervous system. So the summary kind of overall steps of how a neuron works, and then we'll break it down. Um, but what happens is we have a stimulus enters a sensory receptor. And remember, the stimulus could just be light, sound, touch, pain, all of that. And that stimulus has to be converted to a nerve uh, impulse that's called transduction. And then that nerve impulse travels along those afferent neurons to the central nervous system. That central nervous system makes a particular decision. Are we gonna stay within the central nervous system or do something else? And what happens then if they say, no, let's do something else? The info is sent from the CNS to the, that effector cell along an efferent or motor neuron that effector cell that causes a particular muscle or gland to work in your body. 
Um, the third type of neuron that is only located within the central nervous system, it's called the interneuron. And what happens is within the central nervous system, we have the brain and the spinal cord. That's it. And these interneurons are the only neurons that are located within the brain and spinal cord. Um, so it's communication within that central nervous system. We believe that interneurons are mostly used for storing and processing information within the CNS. Now I'm gonna break down some neuroanatomy. So just parts of a neuron, that's what anatomy is. We'll talk about the actual so what of it in a moment, but overall, you know, this is just the different parts and sections of a neuron. Like I said earlier, it'll be helpful to have um, some type of diagram that you're also accessing to see this because for your summative assignment that's introduced during week five, you will build your own diagram of a neuron using household or outdoor items. I don't want you to buy it. Um, you're not, you know, you don't have to buy anything. <laughs> anyway, so for neuroanatomy, the first kind of part or section of a neuron is a dendrite and they receive messages from other cells. They kind of look like trees, I think. The next section is the soma. We could also call it a cell body. There is um, the nucleus that's located in the soma. Um, the next part would be axons and what axons do, they pass nerve impulses away from the cell body or soma and they send or pass that nerve impulse then to other neurons or effector cells that then lead to those muscles and glands. The length of, of the axons can vary um, from being really small to up to about one meter long, which is pretty long. Um, the we'll talk more about the neural impulse, but it always goes down along the axon and it always goes in the same direction, never in a different direction. Um, we'll talk more about the last bit, which are those terminal branches, but they're also called axon branches. And basically what they are, they're just little branches at the end of the axon. Now at the end of those axon branches are those axon terminals and within those terminal branches or axon terminals will be those lovely neurotransmitters, which we'll also get into. Um, and we could also call them axon buttons at the very tip of the axon branch. The next part is myelin sheath and what this does, it's this white substance that covers or surrounds the axon. I like to think of it as, you know, it's like an insulating or an insulator of the axon. Uh, if you're trying to relate it to something in real life, think of the rubber coating along an electrical cord. Um, and what the myelin sheath does is speed up the electrical impulse um, in order to make it go faster and be more efficient. So you have myelin sheath covering the axon. Now within uh, the end, like the axon has, sorry, let me look at an actual thing. Um, within each section of the axon and then the myelin sheath, 
there is um, not necessarily an empty space, but we call it a node, specifically a node of Ranvier, I believe, since it's a French word. Um, and they're just these gaps between the myelin sheath where ion exchange occurs. So we'll talk about ion exchange with that sodium potassium pump. Um, if you're in AP Bio or have taken AP Bio, you get into way more detail with the specifics of ion exchange there uh, through action potential. We're going to go just through what we need to know for AP Psych in a moment. Um, and that, for the most part, is kind of the overall anatomy of the neuron itself. The last part that I'm going to mention is this synapse. And it's this area, we could also call it a synaptic gap or synaptic cleft. And it's this gap between one neuron and another. It will be really important to be knowledgeable about the synapse, what's going on in the synapse when we get to neurotransmission. I'm going to take a pause right now and then we'll get into the actual functioning of a neuron. Okay, so with this next section, I'm going to be talking about neuron functioning. So what does it do? What's going on? And we like to talk about this all or none law. It's really, really important. And what this is, is the neuron is either firing and we call the actual firing of a neuron action potential. So when we talk about action potential, think, okay, the neuron is firing or it's at rest. And we refer to that as resting potential. There's nothing in between. It's not like a neuron halfway fires and then gives up. It's either all or none. And I want you to consider it like the flushing of a toilet, okay? If the toilet is functioning properly, you're either going to flush it and everything flushes, fingers crossed, or it's resting. And we'll talk about kind of, well, how does it refill? And how does it kind of recuperate? Because a neuron also has to do that. Um, okay, so another important word with in regard to the functioning of a neuron is threshold. And what threshold is, is this minimal level of stimulation that's needed for a neuron to fire. Um, if that threshold or if that stimulation doesn't exceed that threshold, that minimum level, then the neuron doesn't fire. So it remains at resting potential. If that stimulus or stimulation exceeds the threshold, it will fire and we call that action potential. So two different types of nerve impulse, impulses, either excitatory or inhibitory. Um, if the excitatory impulse is greater than the inhibitory impulse, that means that the neuron fires or action potential. And if the um, excitatory impulse is less than the inhibitory impulse, that means it's resting potential. The neuron does not fire. So regarding like the intensity of the sensation, it's all connected to that all or none law. So with action potential, the actual firing of the neuron, it's not stronger or weaker or faster or slower. It's always going to be the same. However, how are we able to tell an intense stimulus from a weak one? 
for example, how can we detect a loud noise from a lower or softer noise? So the more intense a stimulus is, that means that the more neurons will fire or neurons will fire more often. If there's a less intense stimulus, that means that fewer neurons will fire or neurons will fire less often. So an example would be a less intense stimulus, a neuron will fire 300 times a second. And the more intense stimulus, so that louder noise, a neuron fires about a thousand times a second. Okay. The next important concept or word to be aware of is resting potential. So this is just when a neuron is at rest, it's not firing. Now, I'm going to get into something that is really key information and it gets very bio-related. And it's talking about, well, what's going on inside of the axon versus outside of the axon? And it's important to be knowledgeable about these sodium and potassium ions that are either located inside or outside the, the axon. So during resting potential, when the neuron is not firing, what's going on with the axon is that inside of the axon, there is a high level of positive potassium ions and they're denoted as K plus. And then again, during resting potential, Inside the axon, there is a low level of positive sodium ions denoted as Na+. Okay, now the overall charge of the axon inside the axon is net negative, okay? The overall charge. Now, some of you are probably saying, wait, you just told me that there's a high level of positive potassium ions and a low level of positive sodium ions. But what about the other stuff? Well, there's a lot of other things inside the axon, which to be very honest, you don't need to know. Um, if you're an AP bio, you will, um, or even regular bio, I imagine you talk about that as well. But the overall charge of the um, axon itself inside the axon during resting potential is net negative. Um, now, outside the axon, um, you know, what's going on uh, ion wise, it's kind of the opposite during resting potential. So, inside the axon, there's a high level of positive potassium ions. Therefore, outside of the axon, there's a low level of positive potassium ions. Additionally, there then is a high level of positive sodium ions outside of the axon. Like I said earlier, the interior of the axon, the charge is overall net negative, and the exterior of the axon or outside of it, the overall charge is net positive. Now, here's another important word or concept regarding, well, there is going to be ion exchange during action potential or when an, uh, um, a neuron is firing. But can everything come in or will it just be very selective? So we talk about selective permeability here. And so regarding that axon membrane, it has selective permeability. And exactly where is that um, ion exchange going to happen? It'll be in those little nodes or the gaps between the myelin sheath known as those nodes of Ranvier. 
And so regarding selective permeability, that axon membrane only allows certain ions to enter or exit at certain times. And the certain times is really important here. Are we talking about action potential? Are we talking about resting potential? And we'll talk about another period of time with you know, neuron firing, and that is going to be this refractory period. And so when we're in resting potential, meaning that the neuron is not firing, that means that the ions will not enter or exit. So, you know, consider it like the bouncer at a bar. Um, you are, there is no movement of those sodium or potassium ions. Okay. Again, remember, it's only going to allow that membrane itself only allows those ions to move at certain times. Resting potential, no movement. During action potential and the refractory period, however, that membrane, the axon membrane, is going to be selective and will allow the exchange of particular ions. So during action potential, there will be a nerve impulse that arrives at the axon. So once it gets, um, it enters through the dendrite, through that soma or cell body, it then will go to that axon. So what happens in each section of that axon? What we have is that there will be a large number of sodium ions, Na+, transported to the inside of the axon. Why? Well, there's a large amount of them outside of the axon. And the goal is that the, or the neuron itself wants it to be even and like with the charges. And so additionally, with that large number of sodium ions getting transported to the inside of the axon, there's then going to be a large number of potassium ions transported to the outside of the axon. During this exchange of those sodium and potassium ions, that is known as depolarization, where what then happens during this period of time, very quickly, the net charge, the overall charge is zero, meaning that the inside charge of the axon equals the outside charge of the axon. Why? Well, those sodium um, ions are flooding into the axon because they're attracted to that negative interior. That loss of the inside-outside charge change or difference is known as depolarization. Prior to it, that axon is extremely polarized. Um, there's that overall net charge of negative, being net negative. And so again, with this action potential, this then, this depolarization process with each little section of the axon allows then that next section of axons to open. And so that impulse, that neural or nerve impulse travels along the axon one section at a time. And so then it continues with that ion exchange with selective permeability. We have those again, sodium ions, um, flooding into the axon, and then the potassium ions flooding outside of the axon. Um, and again, I recommend referring to those presentations that we use that you can find in the live syllabus for this because it'll be really helpful to actually visualize this net change of charges. Now, 
after that nerve impulse travels along the axon sections, those they kind of look like little sausage links. I will mention it in class. Um, it sounds silly, but it's a way to visualize it. Um, and so after that action potential, that neural impulse, the firing of the neuron gets to the end of the axon itself and goes to those axon branches or terminals, there's a change in what the overall charges look like. So for that short period of time with ion exchange, yes, it was depolarized. However, after action potential gets to the end of the neuron itself, the overall net charge of um, the, or within the axon is positive, net positive, and then that charge outside of the, the axon is net negative. So then what we have is this refractory period. After action potential, that neuron needs to reset. It just can't continuously fire. Similar to the flushing of a toilet. After you flush the toilet, the tank itself has to refill. You can't just flush and flush and flush. It just won't work that way. And so that's kind of how the neuron works. Um, during this period, the refractory period, we have the sodium ions are transported back to the outside of the axon, and then the potassium ions are transported back to the inside of the axon. So then it changes with those overall charges. So after this refractory period, the overall charge outside of the axon is net positive, and then the overall charge of or within the axon or inside the axon is net negative. So it kind of just switches section by section. Though the exchange of ions is the opposite of what it was during action potential. Um, and then what happens is after the refractory period, the reset, the charges will look like it does or and the where the ions are located will look um, the same as it does during resting potential. Um, so you have to have refract the refractory period before the ion then, or the, um, I'm sorry, the neuron again can fire or have action potential. So again, the neuron cannot fire unless the inside charge of the axon is overall net negative, and the neuron cannot fire until after a refractory period. And consider that refractory period, it resetting or recharging, or if you're thinking of a toilet flushing, it is the tank of the toilet refilling. You can't continuously flush a toilet. If you're curious more about the sodium potassium pump with the ion exchange and depolarization, you can talk with me. Most likely I'll do or I'll do my best to answer your questions. However, it is more geared to AP bio. Um, so if that you know ion exchange is getting your kind of in your head with it, what my recommendation is be aware of the overall charge, what it looks like inside the axon and outside the axon, and then where are these ions moving and located during the different uh, processes or steps of a neuron firing. 
What does it look like during action potential? What does it look like during the refractory period? And then lastly, what does it look like during the resting uh, period or resting potential? I'm gonna take a pause and then we'll start back up with neurotransmission. Okay, so for this next section, we're going to get into some neuron communication and neurotransmitters. So with neuron communication, what's happening is we're gonna look at, well, what happens once that action potential reaches the end of the axon, known as that axon button. This will stimulate the release of neurotransmitters, and those neurotransmitters are stored in the vesicles, and those vesicles are stored or located within the axon buttons. What happens is that action potential, again, a fancy word for the actual firing of a neuron, that action potential triggers the release of a neurotransmitter from that vesicle. And what happens is those neurotransmitters will go, be then located in that synaptic gap, which is also known as the synapse. So what we'll talk about in this little segment is, well, what's going on in the synapse? What do those neurotransmitters do? And how will they communicate with that receiving neuron or those dendrites of the receiving neuron? Um, and so with, you know, neuron communication, it's important to be aware when we talk about these vocab words of this presynaptic neuron, the synapse, and then that postsynaptic neuron. So that presynaptic neuron is the neuron itself um, that sends or releases the neurotransmitter into that synapse or that empty space, that gap between two neurons. Then we have a postsynaptic neuron, and that postsynaptic neuron receives that neurotransmitter, specifically where on that postsynaptic neuron? The dendrite. And so when we think about neuron uh, communication, again, think about and visualize these neurotransmitters crossing the synaptic gap. And what these neurotransmitters do, they bind to a neuroreceptor on that dendrite of the receiving neuron, also known as the postsynaptic neuron. These neurotransmitters fit precisely into a neuroreceptor. Think of it as like a lock and key. Each neuroreceptor has a neurotransmitter specifically designed for it. Um, the neurotransmitters will bind only to specific neuroreceptors on that postsynaptic neuron, specifically that dendrite. So once those neurotransmitters bind with that neuroreceptor, a small channel will open in the dendrite and that channel will allow ions to enter the dendrite and that will cause action potential in that next neuron. And then that process repeats itself. So, you know, uh, going from action potential or resting potential to action potential to the refractory period and so on and so forth. So it's this like cycle. So let's talk a little bit about neurotransmitters. They're so, 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 so important. Uh, they will never go away. We will... To be honest, I would say for the rest of the year, we will continuously talk about specific neurotransmitters. I think there are six that we learn with this unit, but we'll talk about more as the year moves on. And I will create charts for you to help visualize it because it's so important to chunk this information. So 
Neurotransmitters, they are the nervous system's chemical messengers. Different neurotransmitters do different things, but overall they do have an effect on behavior and emotions. And when you think about the definition of psychology, it's the study of human behavior and mental processes. A specific type of mental process would be an emotion. Neurotransmitters are so important. Again, the phrase, everything psychological is also biological. This is it. Um, and neurotransmitters are so important. There are two types, excitatory and inhibitory. Excitatory uh, neurotransmitters basically cause that action potential of that receiving neuron, leading that neuron to fire. Or you have inhibitory uh, neurotransmitters and what those neurotransmitters will do is stop that action potential of the receiving or next neuron, which means that action potential does not happen in that next or receiving or postsynaptic neuron. It does not fire. Um, again, you know, neurotransmitters, thinking about stopping the action of the neurotransmitters. So what do they do when they're done binding with that neuroreceptor in the postsynaptic neuron? What they do, you know, they're either done bonding with that neuroreceptor and they go back up into the presynaptic neuron and that process of going back up is called reuptake. Or sometimes there are too many neurotransmitters released in that synapse, that empty space between two neurons. Um, and there needs to be a process uh, to prevent or stop neurotransmitters from bonding with other neurons, and we'll talk about that too. So stopping the action of the neurotransmitters, there are four main ways to stop it. We're going to focus on the last one. So there's diffusion. If you get into more details about uh, neuropsychology, you'll talk about this. There's also enzymatic degradation. Don't stress about it for this class. Glial cells could come into play. And then lastly, reuptake. And that process of reuptake is what we will focus on. So reuptake, what that is, is that presynaptic neuron, what initially releases those neurotransmitters into the synapse, what that presynaptic neuron does is reabsorb, basically suck those neurotransmitters back into the end of those axon uh, terminals or the branches inside that axon button. And they're removed from the synapse in order to stop binding. So that receiving neuron kind of stops firing or if it's an inhibitory neurotransmitter, that receiving neuron will continue to fire. Um, okay. So I'm gonna get into a little bit about altering neurotransmitters. We'll continue to talk about it when we get into drugs, uh, but there are two key things called agonists and antagonists, uh, but we'll talk about drugs and artificial additives versus naturally occurring neurotransmitters. In class, we'll talk about and look at this awesome video that really gives a good visual of what's going on in our brain when we drink coffee um, because coffee has a stimulant in it. Um, caffeine, which is the most addictive uh, stimulant there is. So getting into some altering neurotransmitters, there are ways 
that will increase the activity of a particular neurotransmitter. And that is known as an agonist. So what an agonist does is it's not that natural neurotransmitter, but it mimics that natural neurotransmitter that the body produces. And what an agonist does is also bind to the receptor site as if it were that body's natural neurotransmitter. What um, an agonist could also do is block reuptake, meaning that the, you know, the sucking of those neurotransmitters back into that presynaptic neuron is blocked. It doesn't happen. But these agonists could also stimulate that axon button to release more. So there are a lot of different things that an agonist does, but overall what you need to be aware of is that they increase the activity of a neurotransmitter. And it's important to then be able to explain, well, how? Agonists, so an example that's relevant that we'll get into when we get into drugs will be some opiate drugs have molecular structures that are so incredibly similar to endorphins. Endorphins are natural, uh, is our body's natural neurotransmitter. And so what these opiate drugs will do is mimic the endorphins euphoric effects on the brain. It endorphins make us happy. And this would make um, a particular opiate drug an agonist because it increases the same effect of an endorphin, um, uh, that natural neurotransmitter in the brain. On the opposite end, we have antagonists. And what antagonists do is decrease the activity of a particular neurotransmitter. How they do this, they could block the neuroreceptor. Um, so that could oppose the action of a neurotransmitter. They could block the vesicle. And thinking about it in other terms, you know, they block the action of the natural transmitter, that natural neurotransmitter, by potentially blocking or occupying those receptor sites, rendering those receptor sites unusable by those uh, neurotransmitters that are hanging out in the synapse. What happens when antagonists are blocking that vesicle or blocking the neuroreceptor, the uh, neurotransmitter itself is unable to bind and do its thing, activity, with that neuroreceptor. Therefore, you know, it's going to decrease the activity of the overall neurotransmitter. Like I said earlier, Drugs and chemicals can mimic the effect of neurotransmitter and that can cause the body to stop producing natural ones. This happens a lot with opiate use and we'll get to that very soon. And so what happens is when that artificial one stops, when you then stop doing a type of opiate that mimics endorphins, because your body has stopped producing natural endorphins, there, there's no um, natural one there as well. So then you experience withdrawal symptoms and we'll talk about the effects of that um, very, very soon. I'm gonna take a pause here um, and in a moment get into neuro, uh, the main neurotransmitters. Okay, so with one of the final sections of this week, we're going to get into major neurotransmitters. So we have seven. Um, I lied earlier in this episode, it's seven. We'll talk and uh, we'll learn about acetylcholine, dopamine, GABA, serotonin, norepinephrine, that could also be called noradrenaline, 
glutamate, and lastly, endorphins. So what you need to know with these seven is obviously the name, the function, what too much or too little of it leads to, and whether or not they're excitatory or inhibitory. So with our first one, acetylcholine, it could also be referred to as ACH. The overall function of acetylcholine will be that it enables muscle action and movement, efferent neurons, um, excitatory and inhibitory, so it does both. It either leads to the firing of the neuron or doesn't, and it will be very responsive to sensory stimuli, so like light, touch, all of that. Issues with acetylcholine is that if you do not have enough, it could, there is a type of uh, potentially a link to Alzheimer's disease, um, but there, that's not necessarily a cause. And where they're located, they are located at every junction between those motor neurons and skeletal muscles, which should make sense because their overall function is enabling muscle action. Um, <laughs> what happens with uh, acetylcholine is that it can be located in some uh, poisons, actually. And so there's one poison known as curare, is how you say it. It's C-U-R-A-R-E. And what happens here is that this poison is an acetylcholine antagonist, so it reduces the effect of acetylcholine. That's what antagonists do. Therefore, acetylcholine cannot bind with that receptor site. So what happens is uh, muscles can't work, essentially leaving you, the human, paralyzed. Um, another way that acetylcholine can be affected by a type of poison is through black, uh, black widow spider bite. Um, and what happens is that uh, venom or poison I guess that is released into your body after you're um, bitten by a black widow is a acetylcholine agonist, meaning that it increases the effect of acetylcholine. So that causes a flood of acetylcholine into your synapse. So they're binding so much with those neuroreceptors, reuptake back into that presynaptic neuron is blocked. So what happens is the acetylcholine neurotransmitter just continuously binds to that neuroreceptor and your muscles cannot stop contracting. So in a way, it's really hard. It's it's tough to visualize, but you kind of crush yourself to death um, if you don't uh, get looked at soon enough after you get bitten by a black widow. Our next neurotransmitter is dopamine. We'll continuously go back to dopamine. Major functions is that it is a major excitatory neurotransmitter. So, you know, once it binds to that receiving neuron in that dendrite, it will lead to that postsynaptic neuron to fire. Uh, overall, it's focusing with that central nervous system, especially with voluntary movement. Motivation is a big function with dopamine. And the key part of it is that dopamine is this central to our pleasure and reward system of the brain. So it provides pleasurable feelings after certain activities. Uh, it could be with hobbies, 
but on the other end, it could be addictions. So if you're addicted to gambling, you get this flood of dopamine in that center and uh, the center of pleasure and reward system in the brain. We'll talk about that specific location soon. And it leads you to want to gamble more because you're happy um, and so on and so forth. Some dopamine issues, if you don't have enough, there's a connection to Parkinson's degree disease. So what happens here is that there is a um, agonist called L-DOPA that mimics and converts to dopamine. Um, not enough dopamine can also be linked and associated with depression. However, what's important to note here is the lack of dopamine is not usually a main cause of having depression. If you have too much or an excess of dopamine, uh, that could there's a connection there with schizophrenia, uh, but there is a treatment. Um, and what happens is if you are diagnosed with schizophrenia, the treatment that you would receive here, if you have too much of dopamine, you are given an agonist to block that neuroreceptor, which then is going to reduce the effects um, that dopamine uh, is linked to. A side effect of an antipsychotic or antischizophrenia drugs, though, will decrease the amount of dopamine, thus leading to that other part, which is potentially causing Parkinson-like symptoms. Our third neurotransmitter that's important to know is GABA. It stands for gamma aminobutric acid, but we just call it GABA, G-A-B-A, in all caps. Overall function is that it is a major inhibitory neurotransmitter in the CNS or central nervous system. The major role is with falling asleep. So when we think sleepy, um, we think GABA. Some issues, specifically if you do not have enough GABA, you could experience seizures or tremors, insomnia, anxiety, um, and it's linked to uh, epilepsy. Now, what a lot of anti-anxiety medications have, um, because if you don't have enough GABA, it's linked to feeling anxious. So some anxiety medications, not all then, will then increase the amount of GABA in your central nervous system, thus leading you to potentially feel sleepy. So with particular anti-anxiety medications, um, a side effect is sleepiness or drowsiness. Serotonin is our fourth neurotransmitter. The overall major function of it is our mood and emotion center. It could also be linked to perception, so how we perceive particular things and think about them. Some minor functions of it is regulation of sleep, specifically NREM sleep or non-REM. I don't want you to think that sleep is a major function of serotonin. I'll repeat it again. The regulation of sleep is not a major function of serotonin. When we think about sleep, we think and associate GABA with sleep. Uh, serotonin can be both an excitatory and inhibitory neurotransmitter. 
some issues if you do not have enough. It's linked to depression um, since the overall like function of it is mood and emotion control. Um, so that's why when you think about if you have depression or know people with depression who um, also have particular medications, uh, we have SSRIs and SNRIs. And so with SSRIs, that stands for Selective Serotonin Reuptake uh, Inhibitor. So with an SSRI, what would happen is if you take it, what, um, and we'll get into way more details about SSRIs in our clinical unit, um, but we have uh, that reuptake of serotonin back into that presynaptic neuron is inhibited, it stops. Therefore, the goal of SSRIs is for serotonin to hang out in the synapse for a longer amount of time and bind to that uh, neuroreceptor, which then increases the effects of serotonin. That is the goal. Now, what's tricky with SSRIs and SNRIs is the effects of them are different for every single person, which if you have experienced this or know someone who has experienced the intricacies of figuring out if they want to take medication, um, what type of medication, it's generally a long and tiring process because it's a lot of it is very trial and error because the human mind is complicated. Other with serotonin, sunlight helps stimulate production. You guys probably have noticed that I always tell you guys to go outside when it's nice out because it will help increase and stimulate the production of serotonin, thus leading you to feel better. Um, so that's interesting too. Next, we have norepinephrine. It could also be called noradrenaline. The overall major functions is an excitatory or arousal activity in the brain. It controls alertness and arousal. Um, it's also associated with the sympathetic nervous system function or fight or flight. If you don't have enough, you um, it's linked to ADHD with you not being able to focus. It could also be linked to depression, which leads to SNRIs, which is another type of drug that can be given um, or prescribed to people with depression. Um, usually what happens though with SNRIs, a lot of the times it's linked with depression and anxiety. We'll get into more details in the clinical unit. However, if you have too much, you can experience anxiety, which again, when you think about depression and anxiety, for a lot of people, they go hand in hand. It's either this cycle of you are depressed, which leads you to feel anxious, or you're anxious, which could lead you to feel depressed. It's a tricky balance here, um, and we'll get into it when we talk about clinical psychology. Uh, with norepinephrine and noradrenaline, it's also a hormone. Um, and we'll talk about hormones in a moment. And so exercise replenishes it, stress depletes it. Um, so I'm sure you all can relate to this. If you experience an extremely stressful situation, you feel this like, oh, uh, this adre adrenaline uh, dump of I'm exhausted versus sometimes when you exercise, you know, exercise makes you feel happy um, and it will replenish norepinephrine and noradrenaline. What I have noticed is if I do exercise, which I don't enough, but if I go for a run or just even a walk, something super simple, 
I then, after, am able to focus again, which is kind of interesting to think about. Next, we have glutamate. The overall function of glutamate is it's involved in memory and it's excitatory. We'll talk about it more when we get to memory. Other though is toxic to neurons. So if you have too much glutamate, uh, neurons will potentially die. Uh, you could experience migraines, seizures, and in an extreme case is amyotrophic lateral sclerosis, also known as ALS, or Lou Gehrig's disease. Lastly, we have endorphins. So the overall function of endorphins is they're a major inhibitory neurotransmitter. They will block pain sensations and increase pleasure sensations. They are like the focus or functioning where they're located is the parasympathetic nervous system functioning to try and maintain this lovely balance of homeostasis. Um, we'll get into more details about endorphins when we get into opiates. It's important to be aware what they do, um, but overall, you know, if you're taking an opiate, you become addicted very easily. Your body stops producing natural endorphins, so if you stop taking opiates, you then aren't experiencing anything pleasurable and you're experiencing intense, intense pain. Um, and so we'll get into way more detail about that. Um, anyway, hope this all helped. Okay, so with this last tidbit section, whatever you want to call it, of this week, which I, fingers crossed we get to, will be the organization of the nervous system. Um, so I'm going to break it down. I will have you guys draw this because it's so important to draw. It is extremely beneficial to visualize how is it organized. So... Um, overall organization of it. We have two major systems within the nervous system, the CNS and the PNS. The CNS stands for central nervous system. It, it consists of the brain and the spinal cord. On the other end, we have the PNS and that is called the peripheral nervous system. Now, gets tricky. The peripheral nervous system is broken down to two other types of nervous systems, the autonomic and the somatic, which you do need to know. Now, to make it even trickier, the autonomic nervous system that is part of the peripheral nervous system also is broken down to two different parts. So the autonomic nervous system has a, the sympathetic nervous system and the parasympathetic nervous system. And we'll talk about the tricky balance there with sympathetic and parasympathetic. Um, okay, so why do we care about the central nervous system? Remember, it consists of the brain and the spinal cord. What the central nervous system does is processes a crap ton of info, and it's so, so important. With the spinal cord, the, uh, the spinal cord will have connections to that peripheral nervous system. Overall purpose of the spinal cord will be reflex action. Um, and so, you know, we have pain for self-preservation. And why do we have reflexes? Our brain is too slow because it's complicated. Um, so it's very, very automatic, those reflexes are. Brain, we'll get to it. Don't stress right now. The peripheral nervous system, so think the periphery, the sides, everything else other than the brain and the spinal cord, 
What it does, it connects our central nervous system to the rest of the body. So we have sensory receptors, muscles, glands. Why we care, it's useful with how the central nervous system gains info and acts um, actions of the outside world. So to break down that peripheral nervous system into two different types, we have the somatic and the autonomic. The somatic nervous system is all about voluntary movement. So you are choosing to walk, you are choosing to run, all of that. Autonomic nervous system, on the other hand, is self-regulated, but it's involuntary actions. So think breathing, heartbeat, etc. The goal of the autonomic nervous system is to maintain this uh, status of homeostasis. Our body likes this. This is the normal state. And so what happens is the body is able to auto autonomically or automatically regulate itself and maintain certain uh, levels like temperatures, heart rate, blood pressure, um, so on and so forth. It is our body's tendency to keep itself alive. We'll get to homeostasis in way more detail when we get to motivation. Um, so when we think of, again, this autonomic nervous system, um, I want you to think of, you know, the differences, breaking it down into two other systems, the sympathetic nervous system and the parasympathetic nervous system. So when we think sympathetic nervous system, which is part of the autonomic nervous system, we think fight or flight. We have the arousal of our body. Our body prepares for stressful situations. For example, how physiologically what happens, our breathing can accelerate, our digestion slows. So uh, you know, we're prepared for this fight or flight. If you're thinking, well, why don't you want to be digesting things most likely? So you don't have to do another thing, which is use the restroom um, because your body is maintaining that fight or flight mode, which is everything else kind of gets pushed to the side and we're focusing on this fight or flight situation. The body can perspire, um, pupils can get dilated. Why would they become dilated or larger? So we can take in more of that visual stimulus, so on and so forth. Um, uh, what also happens if you're thinking, oh, what happens neurotransmitter wise? Norepinephrine, so that increase in norepinephrine will activate the sympathetic uh, nervous system. So we associate the neurotransmitter norepinephrine with our sympathetic nervous system. Parasympathetic nervous system, think the opposite, rest and digest. After we've experienced this really stressful fight or flight situation, we have to return back to our normal state, which is homeostasis. Now, I want you to associate another neurotransmitter here with the parasympathetic sympathetic nervous system, which is endorphins. Endorphins will activate the body's parasympathetic nervous system to bring us back down to that normal homeostasis status. Our body becomes calm, and then once that stress subsides, the body returns to a resting state, um, our heartbeat get, uh, decreases, our breathing goes back to normal, we're not going to sweat, our pupils will uh, constrict, I guess, um, or become smaller um, and be that normal state. So my uh, recommendation here is to be able to kind of organize the different chunks of that nervous system. Lastly, I'm going to get into um, the endocrine system, sorry. 
And this is our body's other chemical communication system. It's very similar to the nervous system. However, it's more slow acting and there are more long-term changes here with the endocrine system. If we're to think about the endocrine system versus the uh, nervous system, nervous system has neurotransmitters and they're super fast chemical messengers. The chemical messenger in the endocrine system though is known as a hormone and hormones are much more slower and they move in the blood. So endocrine system, again, uses hormones. They travel through the bloodstream. And how, you know, how are they released? Are we talking about neurons here? No, we're talking about particular glands in the body that produce and then, you know, release particular hormones into that bloodstream, stream, which then can affect other tissues um, and areas of the body. Major hormones that are important for us in this class, there are more than this, and we'll talk about other ones throughout the year. Um, our first one will be testosterone. It is the male sex hormone. Estrogen and progesterone are female sex hormones. Progesterone additionally prepares the body for pregnancy. And then we have insulin, which controls the amount of carbohydrates and fat. Um, melatonin is another type of hormone that you'll learn about when you are doing your asynchronous sleep reading or video. When we think about glands of the body, the major ones that we talk about here will be the pituitary, the adrenal, the thyroid, and the gonads. We'll also talk about the pineal gland when we get to sleep. The master gland of the overall endocrine system is the pituitary gland. It's controlled by the hypothalamus. Um, and basically what it does, it can do two different things. It does um, release oxytocin and is associated with human growth hormones. But it also, because it's that master gland, it goes and tells the other glands to say, hey, go release some other hormones, um, and so on and so forth. Uh, with the adrenal gland, if you're interested and curious about it, it specifically uh, releases adrenaline that's associated with that sympathetic nervous system. Other hormones that could potentially be associated with the adrenal uh, gland, one that we'll really talk about will be cortisol. Um, that's our stress hormone. We'll get to it when we get to stress. Um, but there's also aldosterone and testosterone. The thyroid gland affects metabolism. We'll talk about when we uh, talk about motivation and eating. Um, it regulates also the growth and differentiation of tissues. Lastly, um, with the, the gonads, they produce sexual reproductive cells. The ovaries in females is the female gland, and then the testes is the male gland. And to end it on a lovely end note, um, that's pretty much it. We will continuously reference this. I know this week is long, it's intense. There's a lot of content that we're talking about. But remember the um, summative assignment associated with this week is that neuron communication where you get that opportunity to think through, okay, how can I build a neuron? But then also go a step further and be able to talk about and discuss how do neurons communicate? Um, that's it for now. Thanks for listening, and I will see you this week in class.